listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. This Week in Pharmacy, I am your host, Todd Urey, founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I'm excited to be here. February 9th, it is Friday. I'm ready for a weekend. If you're working this weekend, please let me know in the chat. Let us know if you're working. Pharmacists, pharmacy technicians, you are why we do what we do here at the Pharmacy Podcast Network. This Week in Pharmacy today is brought to you by IPC and um, in Ural Pharma. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, I am so excited um, about, about Twerks this week. We have a lot to talk about. We're going to be talking about Kratom. I'm hearing more and more about the use of Kratom, but just like me medical cannabis and cannabis in general, if it's not in the hands of our physician and pharmacist, I think it can be abused. I know it can be abused. Um, and, um, and it can cause a lot of problems. People think I, uh, when, when things aren't regulated, when, uh, something goes, um, well, when something's legalized, uh, when something's over the counter, uh, you know, as well as I do, it can get out of control and it can end up hurting people. And so we're going to talk a lot about, um, these substances. Um, we're going to be focusing on, other organizations that know a lot about this information bring it to you our pharmacy professionals pharmacy care professionals hey let's get into the news before we get into the rest of the program all right by the way as you saw in the intro um it is black history month uh, a shout out to west virginia university school of medicine they did an amazing write-up on Black History Month um, in, in February of 2022, but I really like the trailblazers that they ran through that are tied back to our pharmacy industry. Um, James McCune Smith would have been known as Dr. McCune Smith today, uh, was born into slavery 50 years before the American Civil War, and James McCune was, de was determined to rise above his station, widely accredited as the first African-American to earn a medical degree, and he owned his own pharmacy. Um, I want to do uh, more research on this. We're going to do an entire segment towards the end of the month on This Week in Pharmacy, so please stay tuned. All right, I want to get into something. So <clears throat> USA Today, if you don't know, did a, a special series, a special segment on um, on this uh, top line uh, article that was titled CVS Pharmacist's Death Becomes a Cautionary Tale of Crushing Stress at Work. And we know through the pandemic, we know through um, coming out of the pandemic that there was a lot of uh, leftover um, occurrences of of not being staffed properly. And we see that that has had a huge impact on our retail chain pharmacies. We know that retail pharmacies have been closing a lot of stores. Uh, Rite Aid is in Chapter 11. They're restructuring, uh, but they're closing a lot of stores. Walgreens closing stores, CVS closing stores. But in particular, this story was heartbreaking. 
And it's I want if you haven't heard about this, which um, I'm sure that you have, but I want you to read this article by Emily Lacaz of USA Today, and she writes about the death of Ashley Anderson, who um, waited for relief um, so that she could go to an emergency room because she felt that she was having a heart attack and it was too late. She um, passed away at her post at CVS. And once again, we've been talking about this for years through uh, pizza is not working. It's one of the reasons that Dr. Bled Tanoe really picked up the flag uh, for uh, better work environments for our physician, for our pharmacists and our technicians. And, um, and, and now the formation of the pharmacy guild, which is uh, a unionizing of our retail uh, pharmacists and, and, and technicians. And if you haven't heard about Pharmacy Guild, go to pharmacyguild.org. Uh, that's being organized and uh, part, uh, part management is coming from our, fa- our pharmacist champion, Dr. Shane Jeraminski, who's been all over the news as well. Understand, <clears throat> this trickles back to how pharmacy care is paid for. And the crunch two, five, ten years ago when things started changing with the pharmacy benefit managers, we are an ecosystem, and that ecosystem is impacted just like stocks, just like anything else. It's, a, it's an animal in of itself. It's a beast. And that beast became greed-driven. Pharmacy benefit managers were never, ever intended to be these powerhouses that command pharmacy care from a payment perspective. It was always intended to be a tool to help employers and help HR systems, help formulary management, definitely our healthcare systems, our IDNs, our hospital systems, to manage the uh, payment of medications, and it's just boomed out of control. And it's really interesting bad interesting negatively negatively interesting that we're seeing that a PBM that is owned they own a pharmacy they own health systems they own hospital systems are commanding payment for organizations that are their outlets and it's a complete conflict of interest and we're seeing this have a massive of impact on um, pharmacy care specifically and and you know it better than i do as a pharmacist that's living it making your living as a pharmacy technician it's impacting you and cutting away the resources needed extra people uh watching over um uh, their operations counseling patients assuring that pharmacists can take breaks assuring that there are technicians and pharmacists grouped together supporting each other so that we get prescriptions processed, but then also put safety above everything, safety of the patient, safety of our, our workers. That is happening less and less and less and less. And CVS pretends that it's not. And just for the stock price and just for profitability, whoever it is internal to CVS is trying to shy away from this black eye that they have. And this is one of the biggest black eyes in healthcare history. This article right here that was just put out by USA Today. So please look it up, understand what's happening, 
And if you're in pharmacy care, pharmacy technicians, pharmacists, people that work to support pharmacy, our wholesalers, our buying groups, our technology companies, please reach out to your state representatives and let them know that for the purposes of our public health and public health in general, PBM reform must move forward. And one of the things is you cannot have an insurance provider own pharmacies. It's a conflict of interest. It's an absolute uh, conflict of interest. As a matter of fact, if a bunch of community pharmacies that are privately owned try to get together and build their own networks, they're told by Stark Law that it's a conflict of interest. But we have uh, CBS who owns one of the largest PBMs in existence, uh, ruining pharmacy care. And um, it's not the pharmacist. It's not the technicians inside those companies. They, those are our heroes, but they're being impacted. And it's, it's unfortunate that we have to go through this. All right, let's talk about some more positive news. Pharmacy Times just reported today, DSME accreditation allows pharmacists to help patients self-manage diabetes, enjoy the foods that they love. We're hearing from Aaron Hunter, who's the associate editor at Pharmacy Times, right? And um, I want you to take a read of this, um, to this article, and I want you to pay close attention to um, CPESN mentioned in this article. Uh, that is the Community Pharmacy Enhanced Services Network, which I'm very proud of this organization that was thought of and, and put together over 10 years ago. It's come a long, long way. I'm particularly proud of Pennsylvania picking up the baton from CPSN and creating the Pennsylvania Pharmacist Care Networks that's led by uh, Dr. Brandon Antonopoulos here in, um, in Pennsylvania, but also parallel to the Pennsylvania Pharmacists Association. I just covered the Pennsylvania Pharmacists Association annual meeting. You will hear the annual meeting coverage sometime next week. And I want all of our listeners, not just Pennsylvania pharmacists, but nationally to listen to those podcasts and those interviews with some of those pharmacists who are leading pharmacy cares evolution. And that is going to be through organizations like CPSN that are going to start taking pharmacist care and pharmacist consultancy and getting it paid instead of it just being attached to a prescription and a prescription fee, which is all part of the evolution of pharmacy care, but it's also going to help to differentiate the difference between dispensing a prescription and that money, which the PBMs at this point have gobbled up and destroyed that whole process, versus the truth about pharmacists and the, and the actual consultancy that they provide, especially to people that are suffering with um, ongoing chronic conditions like diabetes. But Take a, a read. Uh, there's a video embedded here. Um, there is uh, excellent information in an interview with Dr. Travis Wolf. And um, send us your comments as to what you think about the future of pharmacists. And if you are a diabetes expert, we would like to build a new series specifically on the evolution of diabetes care and how pharmacists impact that. So reach out to Pharmacy Podcast. You can find us if you go to pharmacypodcast.com. There is a contact section there. Please reach out to us. Also in the news from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, which came out just this week, uh, a readout of the Health and Human Services uh, 
Becerra's meeting with pharmacy CEOs on COVID-19 therapeutics. Um, this is really interesting. A gathering of uh, pharmacists from Walgreens, CVS, Walmart, other pharmacist leaders to discuss COVID-19 therapeutics commercialization and also being prepared for anything to come in the future to be able to react, react much quicker than what we did um, during the initial pandemic that, that blew up in 2020. And I want you to read through this list of participants. Um, I want to make a note of Elisa Bernstein, Senior Vice President at American Pharmacists Association, and also someone that was voted by her peers, by you people that are the pharmacists and pharmacy technicians out there, as one of the most influential pharmacists and pharmacy leaders in our nation. A shout out to you, Dr. Bernstein, for representing pharmacy and being part of uh, this group of pharmacy leaders through health and human services. That's exciting that pharmacists are at the table as they should be. Anywhere there is a patient, there needs to be the voice of the pharmacist. Are you going to APHA 2024, which is in Orlando on March 22nd through 25th? The Pharmacy Podcast Network is proud to manage Locked on Pharmacy on behalf of the APHA at this event will be implanted into the APHA's booth. If you are planning to go, and I know a lot of you are who have reached out to the Pharmacy Podcast Network, schedule your interview with us so that your voice will be heard nationally, globally, that is, and really what's happening for the future of pharmacy and what you are doing specifically and what you want to get out or a shout out to the rest of your cohorts and associations as well as the profession and, and calling out for change, calling out for improvements. Um, the APHA is leading those charges. We're very proud to be a part of the APHA. So once again, if you're going to Orlando, you're going to be at the APHA, please connect with us while we're there. Um, we will be excited to interview you. All right, this week in pharmacy, I want to just point out that uh, Dr. Marina Boskov has been one of our podcasters for a couple years now. She does an amazing job with the Holistic Pharmacist Podcast or Holistic Pharmacy Podcast. And I want to point out her newest episode that just came out this morning, um, Disrupting Disease with Essential Oils with Tammy L. Davis. This is a controversy at many times because of people saying that um, essential oils and holistic uh, medicine is not real medicine. Um, and I think that we're seeing that pharmacists are rising to blend the science and the evidence-based uh, medicine with holistic and, um, and functional medicine. And I think it is absolutely um, amazing. Um, I'm not a pharmacist, so I look to pharmacists to give us feedback on what works and what doesn't in their own practices. And um, very proud of Marina's work and, and what she does uh, in not only her podcast, but her consultancy with her own patients. So take a listen to that. A shout out to uh, Tamara and Scott, who are um, our hosts of the Long-Term Care Pharmacy Podcast, Pharmacogenomics. Not sure if you uh, know much about that, but they're talking about pharmacogenomics specifically in the senior care space, long-term care. Please take a listen to that and let uh, Dr. Scott Stewart and Dr. Tamara Rugels uh, give a shout out to them on LinkedIn. Let them know uh, what you think about um, PGX and using it in whatever sector of pharmacy that you're commanding. 
Also, a shout out to Becky Winslow, Dr. Winslow, and Dr. Uh, Banaz Sarami. Um, Dr. Bernaz Sarami is actually one of our 50 most influential pharmacists voted uh, just in this past Pharmacy 50 Awards program. Uh, they they are the host of our PGX for Pharmacists, and we have a surprise for our listeners uh, coming up. We are releasing a new show with Benaz and Becky, and I'm very proud of them both, proud to support them. And Becky and I will also be doing some special project work, um, so stay tuned. And if we uh, can answer any of your questions about PGX, please reach out to us. Hey, I want to mention a three-part series in collaboration with Moderna, and I want to give a shout-out um, to AMC Media Group, who helped us put this three-part series together. If you go to pharmacypodcast.com and go to our media section, you'll see under the news, the three-part section is there. Please share these podcasts with your uh, your patients. If you're a community pharmacy owner, this is amazing content to be sharing um, with your uh, patients and using this content to better educate about uh, vaccines and, and specifically COVID, uh, COVID-19 and where we're going into the future and how pharmacists have managed um, vaccine rollout, immunizations, and best practices. I'm very proud of this three-part series. I'm very proud of our um, three speakers. Um, I want to give a shout out to Dr. Mack, known as Superman, uh, he made national news all over the place. Um, is a New Jersey pharmacy called Skipback Pharmacy in Lansdale, Pennsylvania, and how impressive his rollout of the vaccine was, as well as helping children not to be afraid of uh, of the needles uh, based on his Superman costume. And it's just masterful, um, masterful provider treatment. Um, that that he did is very proud of him. Next up, we had uh, Dr. Uh, Ravina Kohler, who is a epidemiologist. Uh, she is an infectious disease pharmacist, and she talked about the intricacies of vaccines as well as um, some uh, additional information around immune systems and uh, antimicrobial stewardship. And it was a really interesting piece to the series. And then. Part number three was Dr. Ido Abasi McGee, and she's an educator. She works at um, a school of pharmacy in helping the future of pharmacy be, be prepared. And we were very proud to feature Dr. McGee, associate professor at Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine School of Pharmacy. Um, very proud of her in this series. So take a look. At this three-part series, make sure that you share it with physicians, other pharmacists, and definitely share it with uh, your patients if you have a Facebook page. All right. Um, I am excited about uh, getting into today's um, uh, interviews. Um, I want to say thank you to Dr. First for reaching out to us, and I want to uh, play our first interview, which is with um, Dr. Colin Bannis. And I'm going to play that for you right now. Hey, and on this week in pharmacy, we have Dr. Colin Bannis back. Um, Colin, you and I uh, talked on several podcast episodes before, including HIMSS coverage. Um, I just want to say Happy New Year to you and welcome back to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Uh, likewise, and thank you for having me as always. All right. For those of you who may not know, Colin, he is the chief medical officer over at Dr. First, um, amazing organization that has been uh, working with 
Pharmacy Podcast Network to push out updated content on what's happening in uh, the world of technology and uh, data usage. And um, today I'm excited because we're going to dig down into some data that shows um, that 78% um, of people believe that more Americans, there is data that will um, that will show that weight loss drugs uh, with 41% of those weight loss drugs saying it will become the norm in treating weight disorders. And additionally, uh, Dr. First reveals the top prescriptions people expect to start taking in the new year, including um, anxiety and depression uh, medications, uh, sleep disorders, and obviously blood pressure. This is this is heightening of uh, data that, that we've seen before, uh, Colin. However, um, it's also kind of alarming for pharmacists to understand that these are um, – uh, reoccurring issues, chronic disease states that are there, it's really up to our pharmacists to continue to treat, to track, and then express some of those concerns to the physician so that we might be able to make altercations in moving forward. I kind of want to just ask, give us an overview of what you do at Dr. First before I get into some of our questions, and then let's dig down into this uh, into this data. Yeah, Um so I am, uh, as you mentioned, I'm the chief medical officer for Dr. First. Uh, joined the company about five years ago, uh, but prior to that, I was a practicing internist uh, and hospitalist, as well as a CMIO at an academic health system. So when I made the jump over to Dr. First, it was really to be that clinical liaison between uh, the technical side and the actively practicing clinical side, as well as um, strategy and innovation. So. How can we make this ecosystem tighter, better? Um, how can we get our patients on therapy and keep them on therapy while maintaining a, you know, what I want to say, we, we strive to make a joyous experience for our users as well. So it's been a fun ride. Paul, and I'm excited to dig into this data with you because the United States is um, pretty interesting when it comes to healthcare as well as the health of our nation. There are a lot of uh, sectors um, of the world, including areas called blue zones, where we see um, functional medicine, we see more natural living, we see a lot of exercise in the daily regimen of the of the communities, which when we start looking at some of the United States practices, it's so inconsistent from one you know, family member to the next to geographic areas that seem to be more fit than others. And um, you can't just do a take a magic pill and expect things to be all hunky dory and for everyone to move forward. There's got to be a combination of advanced science and pharmaceutical science and how pharmacists and physicians work at controlling disease and helping to eradicate disease. And then the world of nature and, and, and exercise and good nutrition. So I like data and I like being able to kind of sift through it. So let's talk about potential benefits and risks associated with the new generation of weight loss drugs, just from your soaking in the data that, you, that you've collected through Dr. First? Well, there's a, a couple of interesting things about, so um, there's, we, there's two flavors of data that you and I are talking about here today. One is, you know, uh, Dr. First as an e-prescribing company, we have a, a lot of our own data in terms of what sort of activity is occurring on the network, you know, what is being prescribed, what is what is increasing, what is decreasing, and that and that's fun to get into. And then we also on the regular survey our our um, the patient population. 
You know, so there's a survey of over a thousand adults that asked them about their perceptions and um, what they think upcoming trends will be in 2024. And we did that at the year's end uh, as a sort of nice touch point uh, to stay, you know, in the loop with what what the uh, consumer patient experience is. So on the uh, on the prescribing data, it's it's wild, right? These GLP ones have been you know going through the roof. Uh, for the past year plus. Um, one of the interesting things is that when we dive into the specialist data, there's a lot of non-endocrinologists. In fact, the bulk of the prescriptions now are not from the specialist. They're from primary care. Uh, so your family practice, your internal medicine, even OBGYN, because a lot of um, primary care is often delivered uh, by your OB when you don't have access to perhaps another uh, uh, way into the PCP world. And so uh, personally, I have never seen a new uh, therapy like this adopted so quickly across so many specialties. I mean, five years ago, some of those specialized uh, diabetes drugs, I could count on one hand the number of times I, I ever wrote for them. Uh, I, I was like, you know, once we get past the metformin, the glipizide and the insulin, like it, now, it's now I'm going to hand this off to an endocrinologist who is much more well versed in the newer drugs, the newer. Um, and now it's it's almost flipped for this particular set of drugs, these GLP ones. People are got people got educated and got real comfortable writing them uh, very quickly. Um, and we can talk about maybe uh, some of the off label uses uh, for for some of the drugs as well. The um, the perception data uh, sort of mimics what I just outlined in the prescription data, which is the American public seems to think that these drugs are here to stay uh, and that access will continue to improve, that prices will continue to come down, which we can talk about that as well, um, and that it is um, it will become much more accepted, much more the norm to be on these types of therapies, not only for... Uh, diabetes, but uh, for weight loss, as, as we mentioned. There are other conditions. When we opened up uh, today's episode, we were talking about sleep. We were talking about anxiety, um, you know, other health conditions that we know that a lot of people, in, you know, in our country are, are definitely dealing with. So other than weight loss, um, do people anticipate taking prescriptions for other conditions uh, in this coming year? Yeah, I think we continue to see the stigma around mental um, mental health diminish. Uh, you know, people are are not um, people are more willing to step forward and seek help, seek treatment. I also think COVID led to an explosion in the access. Uh, if you look at the telehealth numbers in, in terms of what has grown or what has persisted uh, since COVID, it's actually mental health visits. Um, Mental health really opened up. You know, I I, I have access to uh, potential mental health providers. You know, a, a click away. Uh, a lot of it is direct to consumer. A lot of it is traditional. But um, that really lets them see more people. It really lets more people have access. So combine the increased access with the reduced stigma, um, and you know, there is definitely an increased focus on health and wellness. Um, you see it in social media. You see it on traditional media. Um, which is a, absolutely a, a, a good thing. Um, 
that there's no doubt that mental health um, contributes greatly to overall outcomes and overall health. So I think those two things uh, have people getting on therapy and uh, staying on therapy and not being uh, afraid to say so or ashamed. You know, when I think of some medication becoming popularized, um, as we know, several weight loss drugs uh, of late within the last six months to 12 months have really become well-known by the public's the name. And once again, some people thinking uh, maybe this is a quick fix or maybe this is the way that it's going to be now for the rest of my life, depending on their condition, um, severe obesity versus maybe being a little bit of overweight. But regardless, how is that popularization of those medications? How is this going to affect the supply of the drugs for those who really need to control um, some of their conditions, like let's say diabetes? Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think it's uh, it's undeniable the the effect of uh, social media or influencers, uh, whether it's in Hollywood or or whatnot, uh, has had on patients. You know, actively seeking these drugs from their doctors, um, and in some cases, and and there are definite uh, anecdotes and there's definite data behind it. The shortage of those particular drugs, because of increased demand has left some of the folks who really uh, were already on it or would really benefit on the outside looking in, or at least, you know, having to delay their therapy. So, um, you know, fortunately, the the drug manufacturers have recognized this and they've stepped up production. And uh, most of the things I read have them pointing to, you know, they think that they can match the demand, um, you know, now that they understand what's out there. It's interesting, you know, there's a definite use case for these particular drugs. This is not a quick fix. This is, uh, you, you know, this has the potential to be life altering for the right patient. Um, but there's still a lot of data that we're collecting. You know, we know uh, that a lot of times when you stop the drugs, you're gonna gain a portion of that weight back or even, maybe even all of it. Um, we know that for some patients, there's significant side effects for these drugs. These are not, these are not just you know fire and forget. This is this is stuff that has to be taken seriously and has to be monitored. And so, um, it's definitely not the time to get nonchalant with these drugs. Mm. Um, and um, that's that's I think that's one of the concerns that you see on the provider side of it is um, one you know primary care doctors might not have the entire picture of a patient who might have gone to a telehealth provider to to get these you know therapies you know and so that's where interoperability and communication is going to be so important because you don't want the care to get fragmented by these new delivery models you want somebody still understanding the total picture and quarterbacking this now i know i said a lot there so i'm going to pause and, and uh see if we can you know have some back and forth <laughs> yeah um I really think about the concerns that a lot of Americans are are expressing to their state representatives and to their employers and, and the rising cost of, of health care, the rising cost of prescriptions. Um, how do you think individuals are going to plan to cope if they cannot afford those prescriptions according to these survey results? Yeah, so this is, this is where navigating this ecosystem, this, as you know, this very complex ecosystem that we have of payer, pharmacy, provider, patient becomes uh, absolutely crucial. And, and that's 
you know, back to my comment earlier about making this a joyous experience for the provider, I want to also make it a joyous experience for the patient. So one of the key things I think around, you know, making this better is in the, the word I use is transparency. So how can I surface as much information uh, at the relevant moments of care to help patients and providers make you know, informed decisions? So on the provider side, that's being that's surfacing the price, right? Let me surface the price. Let me surface the fact that there's going to be a prior auth or there's not going to be a prior auth. And let me, with the patient in front of me, have a conversation about, okay, well, this isn't going to be covered and this isn't going to be you know, $1,200 a month. What do you think? Because, and then in a similar vein, you know, how can I touch the patient after that prescribing event and, and surface similar information? Hey, Dr. Banish just wrote you for these drugs. Click here to learn more about them. Click here for um, savings opportunity, you know, such as um, a copay assist, or even click here to uh, facilitate enrollment into the hub so that we can get you in and get you on therapy. So those are just little examples of redu reducing the friction. Um, and I think at a minimum, when you don't reduce the friction, when you resort to what I called the old school method of e-prescribing, which was fire and forget, basically, I pick a therapy, I write the script, it goes out, the, out, out into the ether, patient doesn't know until they get there, they realize they can't afford the 1200 bucks, they just decide to go without. And for six months, I don't know that they've decided to go without because, you know, they haven't come back to the office. And now I'm six months behind on a chronic disease. You know, it, it's like starting from scratch. So um, at a minimum, we have to reduce these, these friction points. And then you, you, we have seen movements in Congress, uh, Inflation Reduction Act, things like that, aimed at reducing um, uh, drug prices or drug price increases year over year. And I think what I, what I often notice is that as CMS goes, often so does the private sector. So I think I think it's a, a a fascinating area to watch. I'm sure you guys have got your eyes on it as well. Yep. Yep. The data that came from the survey, 1,800 consumers took part in the survey exploring experiences and behaviors related to healthcare and medications. It really dr drilled down into what was the healthcare priorities of the individuals who took the survey. Things like exercising regularly, losing weight, improving sleep. And it's good to see that mental health is there because more and more people are realizing that mental health is health care. I'm back in my day, uh, Colin, back in your day too, we're, we're kind of in the same boat. We didn't really drill down and think about mental health when I was in my 20s, uh, even 30s. It's It's been something more recent that's like, boy, this is a big part of um, what's happening in in the United States, throughout the world, the stresses that are caused by just our surroundings. So let's talk about um, prescription trends um, in in twenty twenty four. What do you what do you see? What have you learned from the survey and through the data that you've collected? Well, I, I think um, the 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 consumers, the patients. I hate using the word consumers. I really do. <laughs> um, the patients expect to be on medication therapies that are in those, you know, top four buckets that you just listed out. So, you know, you mentioned, you know, 20 years ago, first of all, 20 years ago, we didn't really talk about depression and anxiety, uh, at least not as nearly as openly as we do now, nor were there really good, you know, therapies, you know, I think maybe, um, maybe 
uh, Paxil might have come out, you know, 25 years ago or something like that. You know, the SSRI generation finally started to give us some better some better choices and some more freedom around that. But uh, you know, if if patients are focused on wellness and mental health, and you're going to see you're going to see things like uh, supplements, uh, you know, not necessarily picked up on the e-prescribing network, but you're going to see patients uh, increase supplements. You're going to see those traditional, you know, SSRIs, SN, SSNRIs, et cetera. Um, the other thing I'm expecting is the continued um, exponential rise in specialty medications. Yeah. Um, you know, the companies are getting really, really good at developing these drugs with really, really targeted use cases, um, and it's it's just exploding. And so it's not just for rheumatology anymore. You're actually seeing these therapies make their way into pulmonary medicine, um, uh, cancer, of course, huge, huge uh, gains in um, in those, and then even the directed therapies around uh, endocrine. So it's 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 an exciting time. You know, it's hard to predict where we'll be having this conversation uh, one year from now, but I suspect the GOP ones will continue their rise. You know, upward and onward. I am sure there will be other similar uh, targeted therapies around the um, GLP mechanism that will probably, you know, break their way onto the scene as well. And, um, you know, specialty, can't say enough about specialty. Absolutely. We're excited about what's to come uh, in, in the role of a pharmacist and pharmacy expanding and making up for a lot of the um, the pockets uh, of of where we don't have enough physician care per se, just based on the demand on our patient, on our physicians. Um, it's exciting to have organizations like Dr. First tracking and, and generating and, tr um, and using this data to educate what's to come, especially from a macro perspective of what's needed throughout the country. Um, we're looking forward to uh, seeing Dr. First throughout the year at uh, conferences upcoming uh, what what conference, uh, Colin, are you looking most forward to in in twenty twenty four? Oh man, well there you know as you and I were talking uh, just before we kicked off, we go to a lot of these, uh, and Vive is right around the corner, Hims is right around the corner. Um, my, one of my favorite conferences, um, and this is a little bit selfish, but I'll throw it out there anyway. <laughs> um, there's a conference called AMBIS, uh, which is called Association of Medical Directors of Information Systems which is really, it's a CMIO nerd camp uh, that I've been attending for 20 years. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I just like it because there's, uh, it's always fellow, either current or former CMIOs. Um, and my colleagues who are actively practicing, they've really filled me in on what, what's still going on on the front lines. And so, you know, you can't, you can't go anywhere these days without tripping over burnout and AI. Yep. And so you know, how can we pair the two to improve the experience? So Ambus is my favorite, but honestly, I love the energy of a vibe or a hymns because, you know, A, I get to run into run into you and do, you know, on the spot podcast perhaps. Yeah. But also there's just a lot of energy. Uh and it's a nice way to get the year really in going in full earnest. Uh, because there's a lot of excitement at those conferences. So to anyone listening, please uh, you know, stop by. Um we we will have a booth presence at both of those. Absolutely, absolutely. And and to connect with Dr. First and their team, uh, check out drfirst.com. Once again, that's D R 
first.com drfirst.com colin i look forward to seeing you out and about throughout the industry and in conferences and hope to have you back um, on our programs uh, throughout 2024 oh anytime i love this but thank you very much for having me thank you hey thank you to dr first thank you for calling for spending time with us on twerks uh, this is important to have organizations and industry be um, informative and telling us directly what's going on in their neck of the woods and how that impacts pharmacist care um, if you're an organization that wants to get involved in our programming we're reaching a hundred thousand plus listeners every month with all of our programs we are global we have correspondence in London, uh, Anisha Patel, shout out to Pharmacist Diaries, shout out to Katrina Azur, who uh, is just a dynamic pharmacist out of New Zealand, and, um, and her leadership is just phenomenal. This is a network. This is not about one person. This is about the collective power of pharmacists and pharmacy technicians and pharmacy professionals. And we're so proud of the growth of this network. We're so proud. And we're proud of other correspondents. And before we get to a special correspondence today by Dr. Darshan Kulkarni, who's known as uh, Darshan Talks, um, he's one of the Pharmacy 50 most influential uh, professionals in uh, the nation. We want to uh, give a shout out to Ural Pharma and just say thank you. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts for all the support that you've given us in the new year and the development of your podcast that's coming out soon. And um, Steven uh, is a fellow Brownsville guy. So I'm so excited that he got to come to the studio in person and do his podcast entry. Um, one of many that's coming. Let's hear a quick message from Ural. Meet Ural Pharma, a dynamic newcomer to the U.S. generics marketplace. Ural Pharma's current portfolio focuses on high-quality authorized generic medicines in the acute pain and endocrinology therapeutic areas. Backed by its parent company, IBSA, a multinational pharmaceutical company headquartered in Switzerland, Ural Pharma has harnessed IBSA's cutting-edge drug delivery technologies and has made great strides in expanding access to its products across the U.S., Looking ahead, Ural Pharma is committed to delivering complex generic medicines across a broad spectrum of therapeutic areas. To learn more, including important safety information about its products, visit UralPharmaInc.com. That's Y-A-R-A-L PharmaInc.com and connect with them on LinkedIn. Amazon Pharmacy and One Medical unleashed a game changer, medication management. You heard that right. In a bold move, Amazon Pharmacy has teamed up with one, with one Medical in a pilot program designed to integrate medical consultations directly into the pharmacy experience. You're listening to Darshan Talks, the podcast where law, pharmacy, and innovation meet, and it's the legal news this week in pharmacy. I'm your host, Darshan Kulkarni your pharmacy lawyer who's also a pharmacist. Today, I'm diving into the latest transformation of pharmacy services. Buckle up, because this is going to be a ride into the future of healthcare. So now, imagine this. You're not just picking up your medicines, you're getting a comprehensive consultation. Ensuring what you take is perfectly tailored to your health needs. This is not just innovative, it's revolutionary. Breaking down barriers between patients and pharmacists we've never seen before. But why is this a big deal? 
for starters, bridges a crucial gap in patient care. By combining the, con the convenience of online pharmacy services with the personalized touch of medical consultations, Amazon and One Medical are setting a new standard for what we can expect from our pharmacy experiences. It's a leap towards a more holistic, integrated healthcare system where convenience does not come at the expense of quality care. Now let's pivot to the legal landscape. With innovation comes complexity, especially in the tightly regulated world of pharmacy and healthcare. Amazon One Medical Initiative raises several legal considerations that must be navigated carefully. First up, privacy and data security. Integrating medical consultations with pharmacy services means handling a lot of sensitive patient data. This patient data includes state and federal privacy considerations, adhering to state and federal privacy and data security laws, including HIPAA, CMEA, and others, means ensuring that patient confidentiality will be paramount. Then there's the issue of compliance. Pharmacies and telehealth services are gov governed by a maze of federal and state laws. This pilot program must operate within these regulations, which govern everything from prescription approvals cross-state medical consultation. Then let's not forget about the potential for antitrust scrutiny. Anytime giants like Amazon enter new markets, regulators will be watching and they'll be watching so closely to ensure that competition remains fair, consumers are protected. Then there's the actual telemedicine, telepharmacy legal considerations. So Amazon controls Alexa and they have access not only to your medicines, but also to but also information on where you live. The integration of Amazon Pharmacy on Medical's pilots, pilot program, and Alexa has broad implications on telepharmacy and telemedicine, and it's a clear indication of where the future of healthcare is headed. Seamlessly combining virtual consultations, this model can significantly improve access to healthcare, especially for those in remote or underserved areas. Now, facing these challenges may seem daunting, but that's where the Kulkarni Law Firm steps in. With deep expertise in drug and medical device law, we're perfectly positioned to help pharmacists and healthcare providers navigate the legal complexities of integrating new technology and services. From ensuring compliance with healthcare regulations to, to addressing privacy concerns and more, we are here to help you through every part of the system. So whether you're, you are a pharmacy looking to innovate, a healthcare provider aiming to expand services, or tech company entering the healthcare space, Carney Law Firm can offer the legal support you need to succeed. We understand the intricacies of healthcare, law, and are committed to helping our clients thrive in this rapidly evolving landscape. So whether you're excited by the possibilities of, of Amazon One and One Medical's pilot program, or curious about the legal hurdles it presents, remember, future pharmacies here, it's bright. And with the legal guidance, with the right legal guidance, there's no limit on what we can achieve together. So again, thanks for tuning into Darshan Talks. I hope you found today's episode insightful. Please like, subscribe, share with your colleagues. We love Darshan. I just want to give a shout out to you. You've been part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network for years. You delivered some of the best content. Uh, thank you so much. Look up Darshan Talks. Um, it's all one word. And he is um, an amazing content developer. The fusion of um, law and pharmacy together we're going to be uh, relaunching the Gavel and Pestle podcast in partnership with Darshan and Darshan Talks. So, ex ex so excited about that. Um, 
before we get to our next interview, I want to give another shout out. There is no way that we can do this kind of programming and push out this content that's so important to our pharmacists and pharmacy professionals and technicians and people in pharmacy care without support. We just can't. I'd have to go get a real job, right? Um, but I want to shout out IPC, uh, the Independent Pharmacy Cooperative. You have been such an amazing sponsor. And you know what? It's not just the money. It's the involvement. We don't do sponsorships with just an organization that wants to push out a message. Like you're not going to see just blase um, commercials. The organizations that are involved with the Pharmacy Podcast Network and when supporting us are, are involved in the programming, involved in the education, involved in best business practices. And the Independent Pharmacy Cooperative, Cooperative supports privately owned pharmacies nationwide. And this message is from them. This episode is sponsored by Independent Pharmacy Cooperative, widely known as IPC. Established in 1983, IPC is the nation's largest group purchasing organization owned by independent pharmacy. With a mission of maximizing the success of community pharmacists, IPC works to provide members with access to effective programs and services designed to enhance profitability for independent pharmacy. Read more about our mission by checking out our website at IPCRX.com. That's IPCRX.com. All right, last week we were talking about Kratom from a business perspective, a little bit of a definition. Um, it was exciting to get a layperson on, just like me, not a pharmacist, not a physician, not a clinician like you are, uh, you pharmacists out there. So I wanted to bring someone in that could give us the clinical side of Kratom. Kratom is such a mystery to me. And, and when I go to um, chat rooms, when I go to Facebook, people don't know what that is. And that's a danger. That's a danger to public health. So I'm excited about Dr. Christopher McCurdy coming on uh, Twerks this week in pharmacy to talk to us about Kratom. And here's his interview. Hey, there's a topic that I want to bring more attention to. We talked about Kratom on This Week in Pharmacy, which was just this past Friday. Um, but my my team of uh, resource uh, distributors, as well as marketers and educators, and all of the facilitation that you bring, Josh and Steve, uh, welcome back. It's so good to see you. Good to see you too, Tom. So Cannabis Pharmacy Network, we're going to be um, digging deeper into cannabis and CBD specifically around disease states where it really makes sense, where we're already seeing a lot of feedback uh, from our medication experts, our pharmacists out in the field, out, out throughout the nation. But there's other uh, supplements that we're super curious about, um, kava, kratom, the psychedelic world, and Cannabis Pharmacy Network is going to continue to do nothing but network with people throughout the nation that we trust. One of those people is Dr. Christopher McCurdy. Um, Christopher, it's so good to see you. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. I'm excited to share some information with all of you. 
Yeah, and like I said, this is the beginning. This is not the catch-all. We would have to be here for hours and hours talking today. So this little 20-minute, 30-minute uh, discussion is just a, a highlight. It's also a call to action. Everyone listening, pharmacists out there, if you understand Kratom specifically, if you've heard more about it, if you're curious about it, if you want to work with the Cannabis Pharmacy Network, please reach out to us. This is why the Pharmacy Podcast Network is 15 years in the making the most successful podcast network in the entire healthcare industry dedicated to pharmacists. It's because you pharmacists continuously drive information through this network for other pharmacists and technicians and also business professionals. That's another important part and aspect of this, uh, Josh and Steve, is the fact that we can, we can find research and then source credible products that we believe in. And, um, and that's been a missing link uh, to this, um, this relationship through the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Tell us just a little bit, just for the new year, about the Cannabis Pharmacy Network and and what your mission is, uh, Josh and Steve. Hey, Todd, thanks so much uh, for having us on. Uh, Dr. McCurdy, thanks for joining us as well. Really excited to have you share with some of our pharmacists and some of the listeners out there. Uh, Steve and I work directly with about 700 community pharmacists, and uh, about six or eight months ago, we got started getting asked about Kratom. We didn't know much about it, but a few of the patients had started asking the pharmacists. And so we started doing some research and found that hardly any of the pharmacists knew a lot about it. And so just kind of Googling around, we found Dr. McCurdy and man, he uh, he seems to know it. And um, so we we reached out to him and just said, hey, help us help us educate and share about Kratom as we're all learning. Um, and so really excited to have him as a part of just helping share and, and get some answers for some of the pharmacists that we work with and some of the other medical professionals out there about Kratom in general. Yeah, and really, we, we feel so strongly here about sourcing any incredible plant materials that we can use to help you and your patients live better and live healthier. Um, first, foremost, and always, obviously, safety is huge for us. We're big into COAs. Um, we're big into researching the, the companies that we work with. Um, and then at the end of the day, what we're trying to bring to the table is something reliable and something credible to use as a cash-based business for these independent community pharmacies. Uh, we know um, that, obviously, the times are changing. Um, anything we can do to bring in more revenue for our pharmacies, that is what we are here to do. Um, and we just like to make sure that we vetted and, and get all the industry experts to the table that we can, which is how we found Dr. McCurdy. Absolutely, absolutely. So um, all eyes and ears on you, Dr. McCurdy. Could you kind of give our listeners, just give an overview, your background, and the fact that you're tied into the University of Florida College of Pharmacy as well? Yeah, sure. Um, thanks again for, for bringing me on. This is really important part of my mission these days is trying to get as much education out there around around this material as possible because it's become so popular uh, so quickly. And um, we've been researching it for almost 20 years, uh, long before even the DEA knew what what it was about or the FDA. So uh, just to quickly give a brief background of myself, I'm a pharmacist as well. I uh, got a BS in pharmacy from Ohio Northern University, then went to uh, earn a PhD at the University of Georgia, did a three-year postdoctoral stint at the University of Minnesota College of Pharmacy, uh, then began my career at the University of Mississippi uh, as an assistant professor, rose through the ranks there 16 years. Later, I left there to go to the University of Florida, um, and uh, now I'm Associate Dean of Faculty Development, uh, Professor of Medicinal Chemistry, um, and I also run a Translational Drug Development uh, Center for the University of Florida. Um, all of that to say that uh, 
a large portion of our research, as I mentioned, for the past 20 years and, and really uh, more in the last five years uh, since we've had an influx of money from the National Institutes of Health uh, focused on, on Kratom. What is it? Uh, what, what can we learn about it uh, pharmacologically, um, therapeutically, safety? Uh, harm, um, all the things that, that we were curious about, that the government's curious about. And of course, uh, the, the more important point is the, the consumer. Absolutely. Yeah, we want to bring this education to pharmacists, but then continue to push um, specific to conditions, specific to um, treatments that can be it can be used as substitution of something else or in conjunction with something. There was a article that came out through JAMA Network. It was just published on January 26th of 2024, and it was in the substance use and addiction section of the of the um, network of the publication. It said ecological monetary or I'm sorry, ecologic, ecological momentary uh, assessment of self-reported Kratom use effects and motivations among U.S. adults. And uh, we've talked about this research that um, has come out recently. Um, Chris, can you kind of give our, our listeners as to what was um, what was shifted uh, from not knowing to knowing what's happened in the uh, educational side of things? What what does this uh, paper specifically like touch on? So this this paper was uh, the first of its kind. It's really something that has never been done in the Kratom space. So um, uh, ecological momentary assessments are really used when um, patients or, or, or users are taking a substance and you can actually record um, in real time what their interest is in taking that substance, uh, substance what they're you know taking it for, how often they're taking it, um, how often they feel they need to use it, they can give you um, sort of real-time data in terms of how they feel, what their experience is. Uh, and then we also did random um, sort of text messages or, or prompts um, where, the, where they could just enter what their mood was, what their feeling was. We always like to tech, uh, look at the beginning of the day and the end of the day uh, with these uh, individuals to record exactly what was going on. And so um, as part of this, and this is the main publication of the study and sort of how it was designed and what, what happened. Um, but we've got a couple other subsite studies that will come out of this. One of which is um, we, we were uh, the laboratory at the University of Florida. We were the ones that were able to analyze over 350 products from the marketplace. This will be the largest analysis, field analysis of, of purchased products um, from your typical place that it's purchased from today, which are gas stations or smoke shops, vape shops, uh, or over the internet. Uh, and so to have a, that large of a, a sample size uh, to analyze, compare, contrast, and really dive into what the chemical components and constituencies are is, is another paper that will be coming out in the in the near future. Uh, we also were able to do 10 of these patients in this study as inpatient subjects. So 
uh, we actually drew their blood uh, and we've collected their urine. We'll be looking at um, sort of blood levels of the different alkaloids, urine levels of metabolites and alkaloids, um, and, and then getting a good idea of what those individuals that have been taking Kratom for a long time, um, you know, what, what does this look like at steady state, more or less, in, in the subject? Uh, because most all the data that's out there these days has been acute, and it's been in animals uh, or even some of the human trials that have been done that haven't been published yet, uh, again, were acute settings. So people took single doses, uh, animals received single doses, and we looked at pharmacokinetics and behavior after that. So no one has caught it in the real-world scenario uh, like this paper has. And it was, uh, I think, important enough that even the Journal of American Medical Association realized they need to get some education and information out to medical practitioners. And, and this was this was sort of uh, a surprise to us that they actually were interested in this paper. But it's, I think it also shows you the relevance of what's happening right now and understanding what's there. Uh, so that that paper that just came out in in Jim Open actually looked at over thirteen thousand individual kratom events. So these were recorded um, recorded messages or recorded uh, you know they took a dose on this time of day or that time of day, and then each of those doses, as I mentioned, had some sort of um, subjective uh, sort of to them as as to what happened uh, and this occurred in in full over a 15-day period so these individuals that were involved um, were were involved for a couple of weeks and that was great to have that um, type of study come out because there's nothing nothing else like it in in the kratom space right now so we know um, just from just light reading as well as reference from the team at the Cannabis Pharmacy Network, that Kratom is a tropical uh, tree. It's native to south, the Southeast Asia area, and the consumption of the leaves produce um, stimulant, stimulant effects in those low doses, but then uh, sedative effects in high doses. Can you talk to us about the two major psyche, psychoactive ingredients in Kratom and kind of describe that to the listeners? Sure. So I think what's important right now is that we have studied as a scientific community and the emphasis has been placed on these two compounds. Um, one of which, uh, mitragynin or mitragynine, uh, depending on if you like uh, <laughs> tomatoes or tomatoes. Um, <laughs> it's basically the same compound. It's the major alkaloid that's present in the plant. And in general, when we see plants, um, Pharmacognosis would tell you that if there's a very abundant chemical in that plant, it's probably the active component. And so um, also, since it's the most abundant component, it's the most easily purified and, and um, sort of quantified. So we can get um, our lab generates several grams of, of that per week extracting from leaf material. Uh, and that's been the major focus of studies, I would say. 90 plus percent of the literature studies have focused on this single alkaloid. And that single alkaloid has been completely removed from the whole plant material. So no one is taking the single alkaloid. <laughs> Everyone's that's taking Kratom products is taking a full plant 
product. And so it's important to, it's important to have that sort of, um, as a reference point, we're looking at this, uh, what I call complex symphony orchestra of a plant that has many different alkaloids within it. The major one being this mitragynin. Um, and we take it out and we listen to it at full blast uh, and, and forget that it's in concert with all these other alkaloids. Um, and the, the other alkaloid that's re received a, a lot of attention, but much, much less than mitragynin is actually it's metabolite called 7-hydroxymitragynin. Um, and so just to give you a quick chemistry, uh, pharmacology lesson, uh, what we see is mitragynin interacts with opioid receptors, it interacts with serotonin receptors, it interacts with adrenergic receptors. And so you've got a molecule that's got complex pharmacology just in itself. Um, but when it's metabolized by the intestine and the liver, by cytochrome P450s 3A4, um, it actually converts into this 7-hydroxy metabolite, which has only opioid receptor activity. And it has very potent opioid receptor activity. But the good news is there's only a small amount that is produced by metabolism. Uh, and what's been interesting in the literature and what has shown is mitragynin actually has the potential to serve as a single chemical treatment for opioid use disorder. And so when you put these things together, it's very possible that the mitragynin, which is in much higher concentration, is canceling out the effects of the 7-hydroxymitragynin um, when, it's, when it's present together. We don't know what ratios. We don't know very much of the science in that detail, but we also know that there's at least uh, three or four other alkaloids that are important um, that haven't been really detailed and published on uh, very much. And those those compounds are, are sort of the second, third, and fourth most abundant uh, alkaloids in the plant. Um, and as I said, we've, we've had a spotlight on those two, uh, but we're going to start seeing data emerge on these other ones, one of which is called speciocialatin that interacts with opioid receptors as well as adrenergic receptors and, again, can be an interesting treatment for opioid use disorder. Um, itself. And then there's a couple other molecules, painanthine and speciogynin, that look um, very similar to each other and have high affinity at serotonin receptors. And so this could be where some of the mood elevation uh, and um, sort of stimulant effects are coming from um, within the plant. So it could be the adrenergic and the serotonergic components, but there's a lot more than just the two compounds that everybody has been focusing on for the last few years. What about the effects, uh, Chris? Can you go into some of the uh, low dose and then higher dose effects that have been documented? Yeah. So what we've what we've learned from a lot of interviews uh, with human subjects is that less is more in the case of of kratom, and so individuals that seem to be benefiting. Uh, at the greatest degree um, from from this plant are taking low doses. They're taking um, you know less than two grams uh, or or three grams at a dose. Uh, some are taking five hundred milligrams uh, in a dose, and I'm talking about just bulk leaf powder, um, which there's several forms of 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 kratom available. We should 
touch on some of that as well. Um, but really, people that are taking capsules or people that are taking powdered forms, um, they're trying to keep their use down. They're using, uh, you know, like I said, anywhere from 500 milligrams to a few grams per dose. Um, and when you start to get to those levels, you're getting some uh, reports of pain relief, uh, particularly chronic pain relief. Um, you're getting reports of um, increased activity. So uh, whereas many of these individuals might have been taking opioids before opioids or depressants, uh, they, they sort of you know, take care of the pain, but you also don't feel like doing much of anything. Um, and, and we've had many emails and many conversations with individuals that say uh, Kratom was the first thing that actually touched on their pain, but also got them to carry out their daily job or their, their home duties um, and be back engaged with their families and, and feeling good about uh, you know, contributing like they would have before they had chronic pain. Uh, other individuals are using those low doses to really increase their focus, um, to decrease their anxiety, uh, almost uh, not, not a, a analogous to an attention deficit disorder treatment, but, but certainly helping people to calm down, focus, um, and be a little bit more socially engaged as well. Um, and then uh, there's the reports out of Southeast Asia that um, it can be nature's Viagra. Uh, and so there is not only some of the, the stimulant type effect that we think of just as energy, um, but a lot of individuals report that this helps give them um, more stamina and uh, more um, life, let's just say. <laughs> so that's there. And then as you get to the higher doses, as doses increase, you actually end up um, starting to get more of a euphoric, not euphoric feeling like you're getting high, but a, just a really good um, feeling. Uh, and unfortunately, a lot of people have confused that with getting high or having a legal high and have tried to push doses so high that they're uh, running into some side effects, so what we call the wobbles. Uh, where they actually start to get um, rapid eye movement. They'll start to lose a little bit of coordination, dizziness. We almost uh, wonder if it's like a serotonin syndrome or a stimulant-like overdose. And interestingly enough, when um, people are calling into poison control centers, if they've had a little too much, um, they, they would identify with more symptoms of what look like stimulant overdose than anything else. And so this could very well be related to the serotonin and adrenergic activity that, that may be taking over at those, those really high doses. And, and then we can, you know, unfortunately get into situations where people end up in um, the ED and uh, they've had a little, a lot too much uh, and need to be dealt with in that case. And unfortunately that's, where most of our medical human literature is, is out of single case reports that have shown up in emergency departments because individuals have overconsumed uh, a product. Um, and again, we, we know nothing about what the proper dosing should be or, or where the limits really are, uh, other than to say, you know, we come back to this less is more and um, we're getting good 
good reports and good outcomes from people who are using uh, as low dose as possible to get the benefit they're seeking. Dr. McCurdy, can you give us the difference between what you're saying as a low dose versus what has been reported in the high dose um, milligram or whatever um, whatever measurement that you that you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, so in the in the low dose range, typical dose uh, anywhere from two to five grams of leaf material. And I said, you know, some people are down as even low as 500 milligrams. Some are doing that once a day, once every other day. Um, the the half life seems to be for most of these alkaloids in the neighborhood of about 24 hours. Um, we do know that uh, individuals in Southeast Asia will consume teas or chew the leaves uh, off the trees um, about three times a day. So they'll use it in the morning, the afternoon, and in the evening or, or late afternoon. Um, and again, it's more or less for that stimulant effect that being able to work out in the hot sun, um, or labors, uh, this is all in rural parts of Thailand and Malaysia and actually where the border of uh, peninsular Malaysia and Thailand meet is sort of ground zero for where this, where this tree originated from. And so that, that's, that's pretty much in line. The use of the traditional methodology is pretty much in line with these lower dose um, experiences that we hear about in the United States with these 500 milligrams to a couple of grams uh, in a single dose. Some people are pushing as much as five grams, uh, and we would still consider that to be sort of in the normal range of responsible use, uh, um, although we don't really have a definition scientifically of what those ranges are. I have had um, uh, emails from individuals that are taking 90 grams a day uh, in divided doses at 30 grams a shot. Um, and that's definitely with some problems um, where they will run into issues of of really trying to get off of the substance and not being able to uh, get off of it as as easy as many that use just small amounts say it's easy to stop and not use that the sort of feeling is that uh, when they're using low doses, they feel more like it, it's a caffeine type of uh, dependency where if you don't have it, you kind of are a little more grumpy and <laughs> maybe have a headache, uh, but it's not going to be the end of your day. Uh, whereas some of these individuals that are consuming really high amounts, like I said, I've even heard of most recently an individual that was taking 220 capsules a day, um, which if they were one gram capsules, that's an unbelievable amount of material. Uh, if they were 500 milligrams, it's still an unbelievable amount of material because mm -hmm. you're talking about 110 grams uh, of, of kratom in a day versus someone who may be taking, like I said, 500 milligrams once a day or every other day, or someone that might be taking two or three grams three times a day, you're still less than 10 grams, right? Now you talk to somebody who's taking 10 times that amount uh, in leaf material. So, um, it, and it's different for everybody. So you, you obviously, um, most people that are, are totally naive to it 
Um, and when we talk to people in Southeast Asia, the most typical thing, if you get too much is you have nausea and vomit. Um, and that's pretty much if you're naive to it, there is a tolerance that develops. It takes a long time, a much slower time to develop the tolerance to the effects of it than, um, than an opioid would take, uh, for sure. Uh, it's not truly an opioid. Uh, a lot of people have the misconception that it is an opioid product. The FDA stance on it is that it's an unregulated opioid product. Um, I think the FDA's tune may change a little bit. Um, they just completed their first uh, clinical safety trial. The data is not available yet, um, but um, I think they were they were surprised at uh, how little adverse events they saw uh, in a single ascending dose trial. So that's going to be um, shared at the College on Problems of Drug Dependence this summer. Their their study and their data. All right. So as of right now, what's the legal status throughout the country um, with regards to Kratom? Yeah, so right now it's legal and uh, it's federally legal. So there is no federal restriction on uh, Kratom. There are some states that have outlawed it. There's six states uh, that have banned uh, Kratom products. Um, there have been many other states that banned Kratom products, but they've also been states that have listen to the science and started to see what's happening and they've reversed those bans um, to provide uh, individuals with access again. There are certain municipalities within other states that have banned products and I can say that I've spoken to law enforcement um, pretty much all over the country um, and there's there's concern that uh, kids can just go into a gas station uh, and purchase a concentrated extract shot uh, and consume it and be very sick very fast. Um, because I think that just brings us to the point of um, the, the legality issues where we are right now is a completely gray space. So there's no, uh, as I said, there's no federal oversight in the regulation, so to speak. Uh, the FDA does have a... Um, import bans on the material coming into the United States. But once it's passed and into the United States, it can be sold and uh, utilized. It's just not supposed to be imported in. And we do know that there's at least, um, this is pre-COVID numbers. In 2019, we knew there was about 2,000 metric tons per month coming into the United States. Um, and we know based on sales today that that's much greater. Uh, we have an estimated um, predicted population that's using around uh, 15 to 20 million individuals. Uh, the kratom industry is worth billions of dollars. <laughs> and um, there's, there's really no oversight on it. And so there are companies that are trying to do the right things by getting their products tested, by putting COAs out, um, by putting ingredient labels on, on the bottles, putting warning labels on the bottles and, and whatnot uh, on, on how not to use it or how to use it. Um, but unfortunately, there's... Uh, places that I've seen people walk out with uh, Ziploc bags that just have written on uh, Sharpie marker Kratom <laughs> on it, and they yeah. that's out there. And uh, so it's it's a frightening from from that sense. And 
many states have been looking into enacting what's called the Kratom Consumer Protection Act. Uh, Florida enacted that last year. Uh, we're actually only um, that restricted the age uh, of sales in the state. Uh, now mm-hmm. there's another bill that's been introduced in Florida to start requiring labeling um, and certain other aspects to protect the consumers. We're going to start to see this, I think, more and more commonplace across the country. In fact, more states have enacted the Consumer Protection Act uh, than have banned uh, Kratom at this point. So um, there is some industry self-regulation, but it's really it's really not enough. And uh, as far as we know right now, the DEA has no intention to put the material into the Controlled Substances Act. Um, and they want to see more science. And that's why the National Institute on Drug Abuse has been funding a lot of grants. They've funded over 60 plus million dollars worth of grants now to study Kratom. Uh, and what we're learning from all of those studies is there's lots of potential, um, uh, not only in humans, but actually in uh, the veterinary medicine space. We're doing a clinical trial at Florida on uh, osteoarthritis in dogs. Uh, many dogs get hip dysplasia, um, particularly Labradors, our favorite dog in America. And uh, those, those dogs really don't have much option. And so what we're seeing is some really promising success so far um, with controlled clinical trials around that. Um, so we're, we're hoping that there's going to be some um, more scientific studies that may push uh, Kratom into a botanical drug uh, route uh, that, that could end up in uh, you know very clinically controlled dose use setting, um, but in no way does anybody who's researching uh, the product for a therapeutic benefit want to see it removed from the marketplace access that it currently has now. Uh, we just want to be able to be able to have some legitimate uh, prescribable, um, ways to use it. And uh, Doc, something I wanted to jump in and ask just for the listeners out there, just because I know it was very confusing for me at first when we started learning about all this, there are uh, several companies out there that instead of using whole plant material, they are refining it down to one or two of those main alkaloids, specifically the, the metrogeny or the, the mitragyn. And um, just for the listeners out there, obviously we discussed the, the 500 mg to, to two or three gram uh, dosage being the appropriate range. If it is a product that's just the MIT, just the metrogenine, what are the doses you see in that that are going to be the, the most appropriate for a beginner or for someone looking to treat those symptoms? Yeah, it's re- again, it's a really difficult um, number to put exact dosages on. But I would say that if we look at there being about... Um, there's in the neighborhood of 25 to 30 milligrams of mitragynin in a gram of loose material. Now that could vary. That could vary. Um, but if we, if we then think of a two gram as say your typical dose. So, you know, we, we've kind of drawn a line at 50 milligrams of, of mitragynin in the maximal dose, so to speak. Uh, what what someone might consume then at over three times a day, uh, you know, obviously coming out to be about a about 150 
milligrams on the top end um, of what we would consider to be generally recognized anecdotally as safe. <laughs> I can't say scientifically that it's safe at all because we don't we don't have that data. Um, but but that's kind of where where things have gone, uh, and many of the products out there. Uh, would fall within that if they're leaf material even or uh, some of the purified um, concentrates even still fall within that uh, area or isolates um, per dose, right? So it just depends on on how it's being looked at, how it's being taken care of. We do, I did mention we want to touch on these different products, as you just mentioned, though. So we, we really have the leaf material that's very finely ground powder um, that can be used bulk or encapsulated. There's tablets that are available as well from the whole leaf material. Then there are extracts. Um, and the extracts really tend to remove much of the plant material and focus on having mostly alkaloidal content. Um, so all those different chemicals I was talking about earlier, uh, of course, the metrogenine or mitragynin in there, the 7-hydroxy, the other um, compounds that would be available in that. And what you start to see is those products start to vary from being sort of less concentrated to super concentrated. Uh, and then to get them super concentrated, sometimes they have to be put into... Uh, different solvents like ethanol or um, things that will change the absorption properties or the exposure properties so that, you know, even though it's concentrated and you're getting more, you're actually having a way that that is more solubilized and more freely absorbed uh, into the blood, which also gets us into um, a higher risk of, of something harmful happening or danger happening faster. Um, it's not as easy as as sort of the more controlled, defined doses um, that that we can be aware of. So there is this very different product landscape out there. Uh, I would say and recommend no one ever, as their first experience, try a concentrated extract, um, just because you know that, that it, that's like having your first experience with alcohol, taking a shot of Everclear. <laughs> um, versus having a, a beer, you know, with your buddies, uh, it's a very different experience. Um, and so, you know, those, those are the kind of things that we talk about, particularly naive users or, or people that will be starting out as low, again, low, low, lowest is best. Yep. All right. So Josh and Steve, we always, um, want to lead with science, um, However, there's always the first uh, organizations and people and and people that study that are out there actually able to obtain and and try out such products. Talk to us about, um, you know, Cannabis Pharmacy Network has always been innovative. You've always been able to bring high quality products to um, to people that wanted to uh, assess, try um, and even even stock for those areas that are that it's really working, especially the condition that it's working in. But where does where where does the network stand right now with with Kratom? Are, are you getting close to choosing a product or a service to be able to start out with? Well, it's uh, it's been about eight months or more we've been looking. Um, I will say that we're really excited about leading with the same thing we do with our cannabis products, um, investigating the manufacturers, creating a relationship with them, making sure all the products have a COA, 
have a lot number, have an expiration date. We work with over 25 manufacturers currently with over 300 SKUs as a company. And we're bringing on probably two or three Kratom, Kratom manufacturers. Uh, those two also fall into the same guidelines that we have. Um, just like Dr. McCurdy was talking about, there'll be low dose products um, that'll be easy to kind of start with for most begin users. Mm -hmm. um, and we're just excited about something that's new into the space because back in 2017, nobody was selling cannabis inside the pharmacies either. We were some of the first people that walked into pharmacies trying to teach them about CBD and these products. And so no different. Um, I'd ask the pharmacists and listeners out there, if you've got questions, reach out to us. If you want to try a sample of some of the products, reach out to us. Uh, we're here to try to open the conversation about Kratom and Kratom and make sure that the pharmacists know that they can get questions answered or a tested quality product. Dr. McCarty, this is just the start. We expect to have you back on many different discussions as we move forward with more education that we start to apply to different conditions, different disease states, and, and where Kratom can best be leveraged, as well as a mix of things where I see in the future um, I see a pharmacist uh, really being able to customize therapy, depending if you're having sleep issues, you're having pain issues, your uh, you know n nervous disorders, senior care. So um, we're going to be very curious and and very open to having you back, um, Chris. We really appreciate you being here. Yeah, thank you all for having me, and I'm happy to come back anytime. Hopefully, uh, as as the science keeps moving forward, we keep having more information to give you as well. Absolutely. Josh and Steve, thank you again for bringing us such a great resource um, in Dr. McCurdy and, and referenceable. And, and we're always educating. We're always seeking. We're always very uh, curious. And we want to uncover um, everything that we can for our pharmacists out there because we know pharmacists are trusted throughout their communities and we want pharmacists to be um, packed with information. So I want to thank you both for doing this today. Thank Thanks, Falk. We appreciate you guys. Thank you, Doc. We'll see y'all soon. And listeners, thank you for thank listening. You. If you have anything on Kratom that you'd like to uh, send to us and or be a reference for, please reach out to Pharmacy Podcast at PharmacyPodcast.com. And with that, we'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, Doc. Thanks, Doc. Hey, this has been an amazing This Week in Pharmacy. A shout out to all of you who um, helped us put this show together. And I want to say thank you so much for Dr. McCurdy uh, demystifying Kratom for us. This is the first of many discussions around the substance of Kratom. And once again, if you have experiences, if you're a researcher, if you're someone that wants to participate, please reach out to me. I can be found at publisher, that's the word publisher, at pharmacypodcast.com. Once again, that's publisher at pharmacypodcast.com. Don't forget, we're going to be at APHA 2024. If you're there, we want to see you. We're excited celebrating the profession of pharmacy together in Orlando, Florida. It's going to be great. Um, please uh, be available for our new time, um, which is going to be, we're going to start in March in March, we're going to start broadcasting Twerks Live on Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Once again, that's Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. It's going to give us a bigger opportunity to have a live audience and inter integrate questions and, and answers. And actually, we want to have pharmacists fused with people um, uh, patients, consumers that have questions about different things depending on our theme. 
So think about that. Think about becoming part of this publication, This Week in Pharmacy, because This Week in Pharmacy is ultimately about you, the professional in pharmacy care. That's it. We're out. Have a great week. Uh, we'll talk to you next week, uh, Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern time, This Week in Pharmacy. Hashtag twerks.